People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we've got a great guest in the studio today for people who are news junkies. Our guest will be, his name will be familiar to you, and the fact that he's in South Africa should be quite exciting. From a very long career in news journalism, finished off as um, uh, the news, the main newsman for breaking news on Sky TV, we have Jeremy Thompson in Johannesburg again, because he ran the bureau for Sky TV here in South Africa for a number of years. And it's a great privilege and an honor to have a news a news reader, a news man, a news journalist of your caliber here in our studios, Humble Chai FM. <laughs> and you're in South Africa, welcome. You're launching a book. Before we get to the book and your, well, we're going to get to you before you get to your career. In your own words, in your own terms, introduce yourself to our listeners. Stephen, delighted to be on your program. First of all, I should say that it helps to be a lucky journalist, and I think I've always been a lucky journalist, and I still am, because I've come here to launch a book in South Africa and landed here at a most auspicious moment in your history yet again, like I did in the 1990s. Yet again, you're having an amazing political upheaval and changing the leadership of this country. And so it's exciting times, and it's a grand coincidence for me. I feel like I'm stirred at the heart of news, right place, right time, right country, got to have a bit of luck, that sort of luck as a journalist and far it was a long long time ago when I started out and I never thought I'd end up in foreign countries being a reporter I started out I did an apprenticeship as a teenager on a local paper in Cambridge in England thinking that if I got lucky and I was a smart lad I might get to Fleet Street and work on a national newspaper and in those days the 19 late 60s, early 70s, there wasn't a lot of broadcasting around here or in the UK. Television hadn't come to South Africa. There was a little bit of radio. It was all rather heavily censored in those days for people with long enough memories in the, in the South Africa. In the UK, in TV terms, there was the BBC and ITN, independent television news, and that's it, and run by a couple of hundred people, most of whom had been to Oxbridge, which I hadn't. Um, so I never thought I'd go into broadcasting. And after local papers, I was, you know, putting out feelers for Fleet Street and local radio started up. BBC kind of opened the door to loads of us with local radio and regional television. And I managed to get through the portal as it opened up and started out in local radio. And that taught me how to work in radio. It extended my reach as a journalist. And then I moved on and was spotted by regional television. The BBC did that. And then National TV Newsroom came calling and asked me to be the North of England correspondent. So I did that. And then um, a little bit later, I ended up um, moving on to from the BBC to being a network correspondent at ITN. My first job as chief sports correspondent was to come to South Africa in 1982 to cover the very first England Rebel cricket tour, which was a pretty historic moment. Um, I went on to run... The Asia set up and run the Asia Bureau for ITN. I covered the first Gulf War, the Yugoslav War, and then I was posted to South Africa, to Johannesburg in 1991, just as Kodessa was starting. I'd uh, covered the, the release of Nelson Mandela from Lusaka, 
getting the comments of the ANC and XR at the time, which was all part of the history of this country. I ran the ITM Bureau for a couple of years, and then Sky headhunted me. They were sort of taking off at the time as the rolling news channel, the first one in the UK. I joined Sky, did a couple more years here. I saw the election in 94. I saw all the upheaval leading up to it. I covered the the extraordinary Rugby World Cup, which was a you know, a historic moment again in South Africa's modern uh, evolution. And then went on to open up a bureau for Sky in Washington. And at the end of the 90s, I came back and started anchoring, um, was the sort of main evening news anchor. And I sort of pioneered the idea of taking anchoring, presenting out onto the streets to the location of big stories. So years after I'd been based in South Africa, I came back here when Mandela was unwell and eventually his passing. I covered his funeral and I was back in Pretoria for that extraordinary trial of Oscar Pistoria. So I've had a long, long run and long, long relationship with South Africa and it's very close to my heart. From your young, from your youth in in England, you didn't ever have any thoughts that you'd be spending so much of your professional career in a far off point on the southern tip of Africa. No, 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 never. <laughs> you, you've you've worked in so many different mediums, media in the news, and the way that you report news, the way that it was reported, and the way it's reported today is so different. You've got a very, very interesting part of your book where you talk about the different ways in which stories are filed. I, do you know, I look back and I was writing the book last year and I thought, you're almost, Thompson, a, a broadcasting museum piece, a journalistic museum piece. I've been in the business so long that I started out with a pencil and a notebook and putting two penny pieces into a phone kiosk and one of those famous red phone kiosks and phoning in copy to a copy taker on my newspaper who took it down on a big old typewriter and it was passed up until it was turned into print in the newspaper at the end of the you know at the end of the workshop at the end of the newsroom then i went to the local radio and learned all about you know recording and editing on quarter-inch tape. And then I went to television in the days when we were still using film. You know, I mean, it was pretty it was pretty old-fashioned. We went out with the film camera with basically 10 minutes of film loaded in the magazine. Woe betide you if you ever went over that. You had to tell your story inside 10 minutes and then edit it down to a couple of minutes. It had to go in the processing bath before you got it onto your evening show. That spent an hour being processed. I mean, it really was old-fashioned. And slowly, of course, videotape emerged, um, the old sort of beta tapes that we started to use in the late 70s, early 80s, and it gradually evolved and satellite dishes which were enormous the size of a house and had to be carted around by loads of people in loads of silver boxes eventually they got smaller editing equipment got smaller the digital age meant that the images started to go on little cards rather than moving parts and by the end i mean one of the last stories i did um was one of those terrible terror attacks in europe this one in paris and on the final day uh, the police in Paris thought that they had cornered the terrorists in a district in the north of the city, and we raced up there. And unfortunately, my satellite truck, mobile truck, which we had driven over to France to cover the story, got stuck in traffic. And a young colleague of mine who's far better at techie stuff than me said, got out, whipped out his smartphone, stuck on a little stand, 
stuck a little microphone in one side, an earpiece in the other, and I spent the next two hours broadcasting live to Sky News from a smartphone. I mean, how the world has changed, Stephen. You no longer have to have broad shoulders and quite quite big biceps to carry all the all the equipment around to be around Africa. I remember carrying my you know my cameraman's edit gear, which involved you know two of us humping huge silver boxes all over Africa, where at the time, you know Somalia, Southern Sudan, Sierra Leone, Kenya, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe. There wasn't necessarily a lot of transport out there, you know. We were hauling these things sometimes off a bucky and sometimes off, you know, somebody's horse and cart. I mean, there's some great images from those days. We're talking to Jeremy Thompson, a legendary newsman from the UK. We'll be back with more more questions, more answers, more reminiscences about the big news stories over his career straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is High FM, People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're speaking to Jeremy Thompson in the studio here in South Africa in Johannesburg. Jeremy is uh, one of Britain's great legendary news newsmen across all different media. He was also... Um, most recently, the Sky News anchor for Sky TV. Before that, he was RTN and then also Sky's bureau chief in a number of postings around the world, Asia, South Africa or Africa, and also in Washington. I think if you were in Washington, everyone's going to ask you the question of Trump and how did he manage to win the election and where's America heading? Wow. Yeah, that's a big question. I did. I spent a lot of my last year with Sky before I retired from the front line of news in America covering what was my sixth American presidential election going back to the Clinton days of the 90s when I was based there. Uh, and it was by far, it perhaps wasn't the most compelling and enthralling story but it was certainly the most different story and i had i sort of agreed with my editor at sky that you know it'd be nice to finish so i said it'd be nice to go out the bang rather than the whimper and when you end up finding that the man you're reporting on is donald trump and he's got into the white house that was certainly a bang and not a whimper so it was an extraordinary year of covering that story and it was very different from anything before because we had to deal with the whole blizzard of fake news that started to emerge and Trump's use of fake news as a bludgeon to bat away the media who asked difficult questions you know fake news is partly misinformation and propaganda and lies and it's partly Donald Trump saying you from Sky, I don't like your question. It's fake news. So it was a way of him dodging tricky questions. But he extraordinarily became, for a multimillionaire businessman from New York, became somehow the knight in shining armor for the the, the downtrodden blue-collar workers of America who felt they were getting a hard deal out there in the Midwest and the old industrial cities that are somewhat in decline. And somehow, I mean, they hate wall street and they hate washington and they hate the what they see as the sleaze balls and the corruption and the you know the money grabbers over there in the cities on the east coast so they wanted someone to stand up for them and somehow they bought into trump he spoke their language it was you know he was a man who'd been on reality television in a way he was a sort of familiar figure that they just took a liking to much to the astonishment of 
um, the more intellectual parts of America. But I also have a feeling, I mean, having watched him in action, watched some of the other candidates, and of course watched Hillary Clinton, I came to the conclusion at the end of it that Hillary Clinton lost that election as much as Trump won it. She's a fine woman, and she's a bright woman, and she's played a role in America, but she is not the greatest campaigners. And on the election trail, you need charisma, and you need people, you need to capture people's attention and imagination. And somehow Trump did it, and she didn't. And I went to a lot of her rallies, and she... You know, she speaks the speak. She knows how Washington works. Maybe that was her downfall because he was pointing the figure of, finger at Washington. He was representing those who hated Washington. So in a way, she was that establishment figure that Trump managed to distill in the minds of people who hated the establishment. She was that figure that she became a figure of hate for a lot of America, you know. So, and I met a lot of people who you'd have thought would never vote for Trump who said, look, I'm holding my nose and I'm going to have to vote for him because I simply can't vote for Hillary. I mean, it was that sort of election. It's what I would call an election of negatives. And most elections, many elections are negative. More elections are about negativity than positivity. Every now and then, 94 in South Africa, People went out and voted positively. It was hope. You know, there was something new. Obama in the States. Tony Blair in 97 embodied that sense of hope, that positivity. And people went and said, I've got to vote for that guy because he represents hope and the future. But most elections are actually decided by who is the least worst option rather than who is the best candidate. And sadly... That has driven politics in every nation, including your own. <laughs> this is from somebody who's covered elections over the last 40 years. Yeah. So it's coming with a lot, of, uh, a lot of background knowledge. In your book, you go through a lot of the main stories that defined your career. I'm going to read the introduction to your, your, one of the chapters. It's called The Yugoslav War. I want to ask this because I think for most people today, it's something we'd rather forget about. I think in South Africa, we've got so many other things to worry about. But it was an important war, and it's important mm. for us to remember the dynamics behind this. You're talking about negatives in elections. This, mm. Was, mm. this was festering negatives for, in society and between nations for a long time. So, you're right. Sometimes as a reporter, you see a story through from start to finish. Other times you only get snapshots, frustrating fragments of the big picture. The Yugoslav war was like that for me. I witnessed the beginning and the climax. In between, I had run news bureau in Africa and the USA for over seven years, and all that time the fighting was still going on. I started covering the conflict with RTN and finished it with Sky, and without a doubt, it was one of the scariest places I've ever reported from. Some of your thoughts about that Yugoslav war? It was. It was, yeah. I mean, I literally came straight out of covering the first Gulf War, which, for those who you know, don't recall, it was when Saddam Hussein invaded neighboring Kuwait over oil and hung about there and the, the, the NATO forces and the international forces led by Britain and America and many other European countries, Middle Eastern countries, finally pushed Saddam out. And I and I started out reporting it in Baghdad, and I ended up going in from the desert of northern Saudi Arabia into Kuwait with the liberation forces. 
And I almost straight away, with hardly a breath from one war to another, was sort of catapulted into the beginning of the sort of festering horror of conflict in Yugoslavia, where, in a way, the uh, the collapse of the Cold War and the the old Iron Curtain coming down had splintered many parts of the old communist Eastern Europe, including post-Tito, who was the original post-war leader, who'd managed to glue the country together without his strength. The country fragmented, and you suddenly got all these factions, these little countries that had gone to make up Greater Yugoslavia, tearing themselves apart at the seam with Milosevic, the leader of the Yugoslavia at the time, basically the Serbian bully boy, trying to retain control and using very nationalistic language, that dangerous sort of nationalism that we remember from the Second World War and, you know, that that he hoped would bind people or fear in fear together and actually fragmented his country. And I went in there and covered this nasty conflict where the Belgrade bully boys who controlled the army and the air force were trying to sort of bash Slovenia and Croatia and and it ended up with neighbours and families and cousins killing each other in conflict with each other one of those you know it, again it reminded me of Rwanda some years later you know, the, the same sort of things apply when neighbours start killing neighbours because of some wild, crazy idea that they're threatening each other. Um, but you didn't really know where the attacks were going to come from. You were kind of stuck like Piggy in the middle in Yugoslavia, not knowing which side was which. And for the first time, I noticed the, the respect which I'd always found in South Africa when you were reporting the story of the struggle. People would look after you, hide you from the, the cops or the army who might be trying to flush out the townships. There, I found we were stuck in the middle and there wasn't much respect. Both sides pointed a finger at us and both sides claimed that we were the mouthpiece of the other side or, you know, the the Western alliance who was trying to sort of distort the picture. And so we became targets the first time. So it was it was difficult covering it as a journalist, you know, and I've spent my life trying to be independent and impartial and talk to all sides and tread a middle path and pass on that information to people as in as balanced and impartial a way as possible. And it's tough when both sides are having a go at you and it's hard to get to them. Um, so it was intriguing. I went away, I came to South Africa, I covered Africa for four or five years, then went to the States and ended up as an anchor going back in with what was a groundbreaking bit of television for the liberation of Kosovo in 1999, where we drove little satellite trucks out all the way from London, all the way across Europe, so that unbeknown to anybody, including the military and including the liberating forces, as soon as they went over the border into this country, because of this little Kosovo that hadn't really been seen, people hadn't been able to get there to tell the story, we went straight over the border and managed to broadcast live as the liberation went on, which was groundbreaking in its own right. And it was, it kind of did feel like the 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 almost the completion of the story. It felt like it had almost come full circle in the nine years I've been covering it. We're speaking to Jeremy Thompson from 
from England. It's difficult to say one specific news outlet, but <laughs> RTN, BBC RTN, and then Sky TV. He was the news anchor on Sky TV's Evening News, and uh, his book. Breaking news is available in South Africa now. He's here in South Africa for the launch of his book. We'll be back straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is High FM, People of the Book. And we're speaking to Jeremy Thompson. I want to delve into, for us in South Africa, the most, uh, the most heartwarming part of the book, which will be the Mandela years. Uh, just to read the beginning of your chapter of the Mandela years. It was an inauspicious start to my relationship with Nelson Mandela. As he walked free from Victor Fister prison in South Africa's Western Cape on Sunday 11th, February 1990, I was 1,800 miles north in Lusaka, trying to coax his comrades into action. <laughs> Take us through the story. Yeah, well, I was sent in to sort of get the reaction of the ANC and Exile, because really it was the only place you could get the sort of the voice, the genuine, credible voice of the ANC, um, at what was, you know, in all our minds, I think a huge moment in their 100-year history. Mandela, who was, you know, one of their iconic figures, uh, an enigma in a way, a man that nobody had really seen for 27 years coming out of jail. And all that was going on, and we ended up in Lusaka at the Pomodzi Hotel, where a lot of the ANC sort of hung out and met the foreign media. And we were... Uh, us media guys were a little bit surprised that the low-key, the rather muted response from the NC. And I think, you know, we just felt that they were so far out of the loop in many ways, although they were obviously connected with their, you know, their network on the ground in South Africa. They've been out of it so long. They may not have quite grasped the enormity of the moment. And television was a bit ropey and a bit, you know, like a you know, snowstorm on the telly and good old Zambia, and and we eventually, I mean, we in desperation, the TV guys go, we haven't got much to film here. They don't look very excited. So eventually we sort of helped lay on a party so that we could get them a bit stoked up so that they could really whip it up and look like they were enjoying Mandela coming out. They were still a bit wary, you know. They, uh, you know, I remember Paolo Jordan, who was the, uh, the sort of media spokesman at the time, minister of, you know, Minister in Exile of Communications say, yes, well, we are very excited at Comrade Mandela coming out of jail, but we must leave all options open. The arms struggle is still going on. It was that sort of thing. They they kind of, I don't think, believed what was happening or believed their luck, what it could all mean. And four years later, of course, I saw a lot of these guys, you know, the same guys who'd been in Lusaka, the Union Buildings in May 1994, as the Rainbow Nation speech is about to be delivered by President Mandela, and all these guys are now in snappy suits and looking very sharp, and they've all got ministerial roles, and it was a wonderful transformation. And I thought, hey, guys, you know, good luck. You've got a big task on your hands. <laughs> That's election. You have another chapter, you say, in the beginning of this chapter. It was a hell of a start to Sky's New Africa Bureau. One minute, we were having a quiet Sunday lunch, putting steaks on the fire. The next thing, we were under fire. I won't forget the date. It was the 9th of January, 1994, my very first assignment for Sky News. <laughs> so it's both historical for us as a country, yeah. lead up to the election, and in your own career. And intriguingly brings us right back to today and your new president, because what happened, we I was having a sort of team bonding bra in the back garden in you know, the northern suburbs of Joburg, and I... 
I knew that there was sort of ANC had let us know about this event out in Katlahong, Tokoza area, um, that they were claiming peace had broken out, you know, in what had been a real battle scarred township, as many people remember. It was a tough place to live. So we went out. I said to the guys, okay, you know, let's, you know, my cameraman, and so just we'll pop out for an hour. I'm sure it won't amount to anything, but I just have, a, you know, I just have one of those journalistic nagging feelings that we ought to be there and went out there. And the security guys, McBride and others, the ANC are showing Cyril Ramaphosa and Joe Slovo how peace had broken out. Sadly, peace lasted about 30 seconds before gunfire descended on us from the hostel up the hill. The ANC um, local home defence brigades run up the other way with AK-47s and blasting away from hip level. And me and a few other journalists were sort of caught in the middle of this. I could see out the corner of my eye Cyril Ramaphosa being dragged out by his bodyguards and Joe Slovo armed bodyguards taking them out of this renewed battlefield. I got stuck in some bombed-out houses on the front line. A few of us, somebody said, make a run for it now. We ran for cover. The journalist in front of me, a well-known photographer called Abdul Sharif, tragically was shot and killed there. Another journalist was wounded. We dived to the ground, dragged him out and crawled out ourselves. And it was, you know, I mean, it was... A reminder of the of the terrible violence, the price people paid to win that democracy finally in 1994 after all those years. You know, because this sort of thing that a lot of people face day in, day out, that sort of violence, that sort of terror in their neighborhoods that implicated, involved them whether they liked it or not. And it, it was, you know, a, a vivid illustration of just what this country went through in those many, many years leading up to the evolution to full democracy. Last question. We're speaking to Jeremy Thompson from Sky TV, being in South Africa, a number of uh, of postings as head of the South African Bureau. You started the Bureau up here in South Africa for Sky TV. When we look at the technology that's used to produce news and the way that we as consumers consume news. If I ask you today what's going to happen in the future, you're going to say, well, hopefully you will be, give, be able to give us an answer. If someone asked me, I wouldn't be able to predict any great revolution. But if we just look at the last 15 years, mm. there's been so many revolutions and the momentum is so great that it's impossible we're going to stop with what we've got. Where is news going? I started out in newspapers and was soon told, our oh, newspapers are dead, you know, radio and television taking over. I went to radio and they said, oh, television's coming along, radio's dead. I went into television and it lasted pretty well. We had a great time for about 30 years and then you know, come the 2000s, the noughties, social media starts up, digital revolution, and everybody says, oh, television's dead now. They're all still there. Newspapers are there, online and in your hand, off a, off a news stall. Struggling a bit, but they're still there. Radio flourishes. It thrives, particularly in South Africa. Radio's huge. It's not dead at all. It's thriving. It is high. It is alive. <laughs> and... um Television is still doing well, but it's living. Everybody is having to live alongside each other and find a place. So, I think 
the, the digitalization of the world, the fact that we're able to get stuff on devices as we walk around pretty much any part of the world these days will revolutionize the way we read, the way we listen, the way we look, the way we get our video pictures, the way we talk to each other. But I don't think it negates one part of that sort of huge media bouquet that we've been talking about and which I was lucky enough to work in for 50 years we'll just find a ways of adapting you still in the end there was an old phrase in television content is king and it applies to radio as well if you've got nothing good to put out there nobody's going to listen nobody's going to read nobody's going to watch so you've got to have content you've still got to you know I see content as the tractor unit that drives the the bucky behind you or the rest of the the tractor trailer unit you've got to have content to put down whichever tube you feed it down you know they're all utilities we turn on a tap and we get water or electricity you turn on a tap you get television or you get information you get radio you get news you've still got to get you know i still believe in the old-fashioned journalistic values you've got to dig up the news you've got to find it you've got to check it you've got to double check it. you've got to treble check it in these days of fake news you've probably got to quadruple check it before you put it out there but you still need that information whatever you put out there and i think social media and digital media can complement those others and they can all live side by side one day down the line, one of them may fall by the wayside. Who knows which bit of the media would perish. I'm a positive believer that they'll all thrive for a while yet. These are the closing thoughts of our guest today. News anchorman, bureau chief head for BBC's RTV, Sky TV. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a great honor and privilege having someone of your caliber here, sharing your stories, your ideas, your thoughts, your reminiscences. Thank My you. pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.